you have to make it profitable for the wrong people to do the right thing. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, the one and only Mike Madrid. I feel like we need walk-on music for you at, the, at this point, Mike. I think we need, yeah, I feel like doing some jumping jacks and <laughs> jumping up and down, get myself up a little bit. Great to be with you guys. Uh, that's a green room joke. Also returning to the roundup is the inimitable Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute, and many other things. Lucy, good morning. Great to see you again. Good morning. I'm doing high knees as we speak. It's amazing. My mic is as stable as it is. And joining us for our lead segment today is Romina Boccia. Romina is the Director of Budget and Entitlement Policy at the Cato Institute. She specializes in federal spending, the budget process, the economic implications of rising debt, and Social Security and Medicare reform. She previously served as the Director of the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at the Heritage Foundation. Romina, thank you for making the time being here. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. Up first this week, we're going to dive into the negotiations for raising the debt ceiling and cutting spending. Then we'll discuss the end of Title 42, the surge in migrants at the border, and how that could shape the political climate. And finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we'll discuss the rise of white nationalist Hispanics. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head on over to politicology.com slash plus, or just click the link at the top of today's show notes. We'll dive in right after this. All right. On Tuesday, President Biden met with congressional leaders to discuss raising the debt limit at the White House for the first time in three months. But significantly, this meeting comes after the House passed a bill to raise the debt limit and make cuts to spending along party lines. After the meeting, there was no consensus on how to end their impasse over raising the debt limit and cutting spending, but the fact they actually sat down together is in and of itself movement. We're just weeks away from the U.S. potentially defaulting on its obligations for the first time in history. Uh, Yellen says that could be as early as June 1. So far, Biden and McCarthy appear to be stuck in their opposing positions. Biden's demanding that Congress raise the debt ceiling unconditionally, which is what he means when they call it a clean increase. And McCarthy is insisting that increasing the debt limit must be accompanied by a serious reduction in spending. After the meeting, McCarthy said he, quote, didn't see any movement from Biden. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who was also in the meeting, said that there was probably some places where Democrats could agree and compromise on spending cuts, but not as part of a debt ceiling negotiation. Over the weekend, 43 Senate Republicans said they would not vote to raise the debt limit, quote, without substantive spending and budget reforms. So there's been some progress. It's minimal. But the Speaker's office and the White House have been meeting this week. The President and the Speaker are scheduled to meet today when this episode comes out. And I want to put a couple of things on the table before I go to you, Ramina. First, for our listeners, our debt and deficit problem is a creation of both parties. We should be reminded, not just Democrats. Long gone are the days of a Republican Party interested in fiscal conservatism or fiscal restraint. 
Uh, second is that the fight over the debt ceiling is not about whether to authorize new spending. It's about whether to authorize the federal government to go deeper into debt so that it can pay for things Congress has already authorized in previous legislation. So failing to do so would result in defaulting on bills we owe, which we have never done, and would dramatically undermine trust in the dollar, wreak havoc on the economy here and throughout the rest of the world. So an argument you probably have heard from the left is that even hinting that we might not raise the debt ceiling is dangerous and irresponsible, uh, and that any discussions about reducing the debt and deficit should be completely separate. But that's a little bit disingenuous because the reality is that there is scarcely ever an acknowledgement of the problem in the first place during the normal course, making it impossible to talk about cutting spending, let alone actually doing it because it's so politically unpopular. And in order to force people to reckon with this problem, you need leverage and the debt ceiling is a potent tool of leverage. So with that as the stage, Ramina, maybe you can explain to us why in the first place it's important to get the debt under control. Yeah, so let's take stock. We are at a time where debt is almost as large as the entire U.S. economy. All goods and services produced in a given year. And um, academic research across the aisle shows that in industrialized countries, when you reach a threshold of about 80% of gross domestic product or GDP, that's when um, debt high government debt starts slowing down growth. We are well past that point. And I think that we can all acknowledge that growth is um, wonderful. It, um, it helps people across various uh, income categories, allows America to continue to thrive, succeed, and make investments to be a strong nation in the future. And, uh, and having lower growth is a problem. So that's, that's the first part. And then over the next five or six years, we are looking to reach debt levels that we've never seen before in the United States, not even following World War II. So we're on track to reach record high levels. And a lot of this spending, deficit spending, is driven by programs that Congress doesn't vote on on a regular basis. Uh, more than two-thirds of the federal government uh, grows on autopilot. And I think that's why the debt limit is so important as an action-forcing lever because Congress only votes on about one third of spending in any given year. And it's the other two thirds that are um, the key drivers of deficits and debt. I mean, Medicare and Social Security alone over the long term, uh, looking at the 75 year horizon, they will be responsible for 95 percent of all unfunded obligations. Meanwhile, you have uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle saying that we will not cut uh, Medicare or Social Security. We will not consider reforms in those areas, at least not this year at the debt limit. And it's like, then what are we even talking about? Yeah. So in a way, and I think everyone will remember the State of the Union moment when Biden pretty deftly got Republicans to agree that they're not going to touch entitlement reform, Social Security, Medicare. So is it fair to characterize this problem as, as the debt on one side and all of the politicians on the other side? is. Do you see any path forward here? And maybe you can lay out what the spending cuts are in the bill that just passed the House. Yeah. So both sides um, like to just continue to spend. It's the politically easiest thing to do. Um, spending cuts are hard. But uh, if you look at the, you know, the growth in major entitlement programs, um, they're consuming a large share of the tax base already. And a lot of the spending you, you could trim without doing much harm. You would actually free up more um, money for other investments and, and growth in other areas. Um, some of the, I think, most uh, 
most obvious reforms that should be made is reflecting the fact that people are living longer and especially higher income earners are living longer and they are also getting the most uh, generous um, benefits, at, at least when it comes to Social Security. Roughly the highest earners can um, collect about $5,000 a month from Social Security. Um, so we can start we can start there. But um, yeah, I mean, politically, it's it's um, it's not profitable to talk about spending reductions or tax increases. So we're living in a period of what I like to call um, fiscal illusion, where um, we get more government than we would be willing to pay for if we actually considered the trade-offs. We did a poll on this, Emily Eakins at the Cato Institute recently, looking specifically at the student loan um, student loan debt forgiveness. And about two thirds of Americans in that poll said they supported student loan debt forgiveness when you just phrased it as, do you support this policy? But when you added, would you be willing to pay higher taxes in order to forgive these student loans? Support dropped in half. So it's the fact that we don't grapple with trade-offs at all, that it seems like money is free and the government can just make more of it when it needs to that we end up getting a much larger government than uh, perhaps people on, on either side of the political spectrum would otherwise want and be willing to pay for. Okay, we'll get to the government creating more when it wants to, because I do want to talk about MMT a little bit later on. But the bill, as it sits now, would cut discretionary spending by an average of 18% over the next decade. Republicans have said they won't cut defense spending, they won't cut veterans' health care, they won't cut Medicare or Social Security. So if you don't have an 18% cut across the board and you leave those programs untouched, as everybody's promised they would do, you would need to cut the rest of discretionary budget by more than half. So what would a path to a palatable solution look like without cutting those big ticket items, even slightly? Is it even possible? Yeah, I mean, I I really think that... uh... Discretionary spending overall, it's the wrong target. In 2011, the whole point of the Budget Control Act spending limits on discretionary spending for defense and non-defense wasn't necessarily to squeeze that part of the budget yet more. Because as a share of the economy, it's uh, as a share of the budget and as a share of the economy, it's been declining, especially defense. And so what if we really want to make a difference in terms of our long-term debt trajectory, we need to grapple with the programs that are driving the growth in the debt. And, you know, I do think that there's things we can cut on defense and, and non-defense and that there's inefficiencies and redundancies and duplication. But overall, um, most of the growth is in, in healthcare and old age entitlements. And so, I mean, that just goes to show that what we're in is a political debate, much more so than a, a real um, a, a, a trying to find real solutions to a growing fiscal crisis that we're facing in this country. Lucy, you you looked like you had a few things to say there, but I want to I want to let's talk about the policy. We can also talk about the politics, but I'm also curious if you and or Mike have uh, other questions for Romina too. One question I have for Romina, and I say this as a person who came up on the right and uh, worked on efforts to pass a federal balanced budget amendment in around 2010, let's say, and that was in the halcyon days where like the Tea Party or not, there was a there was a very strong bent at that time of a real push for fiscal restraint. At that time, the um, 
the national debt was something like 14 trillion, which seemed insane. But now, you know, we've by far more than doubled that, right? And it's growing all the time. And I'm I'm it's interesting to have Romina here because from my perspective, among the players on the right, there used to be more. And now the Cato Institute, where you work, is arguably one of the only groups on the right that still actually outside of outside of um, when it's politically opportunistic, seems to consistently give a damn and be very consistent in raising the alarm about this issue. Um, and, you know, Cato is the I have a lot of respect for Cato. Cato is the only entity that is a major player on the right out there that you will see being honest about the fact that maybe it's not the highest priority, but maybe we should not be um not be so blind around having conversations about things like defense spending. So when I think about the ability to actually make any headway over the long term outside of these push-pull, idiotic, highly polarized moments where we have these kind of reductionist fights over the debt ceiling, what, if anything, could be done along with this, Romina, from a from the perspective of, at least on the right, trying to get people aligned to actually have a, a sense of this issue over the long term. And so that in the so-called, I guess, off season, for lack of a better term, when we are not in this moment of like, you know, we're going to run out, of, we're going to start having really serious issues in a few weeks, or, you know, Jamie Dimon says that our credit might be downgraded and JP Morgan has a war room, right? Like, what are the things that the collective consciousness needs to start thinking about so that we could actually get out of this horrible situation? How do we remind people that this is a horrible mm. situation? That's a great question. Yeah, I, I do think that the debt and reaching the debt limit is a fo focusing moment. But something else to look at is the growth in interest costs. And uh, as rates have gone up, how this is affecting the federal budget. And if you look at other countries, you know, the United States is uh, is not the first or only country that is facing a long term entitlement spending crisis. Um, many OECD countries before us have have tackled this issue. And one thing that uh, a lot of the solutions, especially when it comes to reforming entitlements, have in common is that you need to take it out of politics. And the way to do that is to empower an independent commission. And the, um, um, the Government Accountability Office did a really great study, I want to say it was in 2008, which was just leading up to those fiscal debates in 2010 about um, looking at, you know, how did other OECD countries reform their um, their healthcare, their pension and disability programs. And in almost all cases, um, countries employed a commission, a commission process to get reform done. And I think especially in our polarized environment, um, that that is going to be the only way forward to actually do meaningful entitlement reform in the United States. And so I've been advocating and actually had a, a piece come out on Monday and a new paper come out um, early this morning at Cato Institute um, for a BRAC-like fiscal commission. And I'm actually encouraged because there's a 64-member caucus uh, in Congress called the Problem Solvers Caucus, and they actually included a proposal for a BRAC-like fiscal commission in their debt limit framework. And uh, I find that really encouraging because you, you have to make it profitable for the wrong people to do the right thing, quoting Milton Friedman here, and I think that's what this commission allows us to do. When you say BRAC, I just want to clarify for listeners who are wondering what that is. We're talking about the, the, the process the DOD uses called base realignment and closure 
which is how they go about deciding what military bases to close, which is often very politically unpopular. It's why they do it through this very uh, transparent process so that nobody can get upset. Like you trust the way the process works so that you can trust the outcome. That's kind of what you're talking about, right? That's right. And I think what's also really important is that BRAC uses a fast track mechanism. It doesn't force Congress to take a vote on base closures. And similarly, I think a BRAC-like fiscal commission um, shouldn't force members of Congress to take a vote on entitlement reforms. Instead, you empower the commission to come up with the recommendations. You you give the president fast track authority, which we use in other settings like trade negotiations. So the president still has uh, that up or down vote. Uh, Congress will have oversight over the commission. They'll be informed about the processes. But unless Congress uh, votes to reject the proposals in, con uh, in the legislature, um, they would just go into effect. So it's this default adoption or silent approval that allows members of Congress to put up a fight and say, you know, I don't like these changes and I wouldn't have done it that way, but without undermining the success of um, the actual recommendations. Mike, I have two questions for you. One specifically about how that kind of, you know, like a BRAC-like fiscal commission could work politically, whether it would work politically. And then the second is sort of at the bigger picture here, when we first started talking about the, uh, the the debt ceiling fight that was coming, you know, Kevin McCarthy isn't going into this with any goodwill, right? It looks it looked very disingenuous in the beginning, and uh, for me, it's been important to separate the bad faith with which he and his caucus seem to have been operating on this topic, and also the very real problem of our debt and deficit and the the real need to rein in spending and have a sober conversation about it. So. Um, specifically about the, the, the BRAC commission, the BRAC style fiscal commission, would that work politically? And then more broadly, maybe zooming out, how do you think this plays out for, uh, McCarthy and the Republican brand writ large? So whether it's a good decision or not, I tend to think that it probably is. It, it's increasingly, I think the only solution, right? We know that the political will amongst the elected members is not going to get us there, with a direct vote. So having a BRAC-like process is probably the only way to make meaningful cuts um, to get to where we need to go to, to stabilize this, this problem, right? Here's the challenge. With BRAC, the, the problems were very severe if you lose a base, but they're very geographically isolated, right? And I know that for, as California in the 1990s, we were overwhelmingly smashed with the back BRAC process. Like half of our military bases were shut down after the Cold War because there was no longer a need to have that kind of a military presence on the Pacific Rim. Um, and, and California took a disproportionate share of that pain. That geography is easy to deal with when it's politically isolated geographically. This is not going to be like that. This is going to be old people everywhere. It's going to be sick people everywhere. It's going to be, you know, wherever these cuts come from, and they're going to have to come from, from some of these large entitlement programs. Every member of Congress is going to hear the pushback where this is coming. In California in the mid-1990s, it was California's members of Congress, and as, as big our delegation was, people were like, well, that's too bad. we got to cut those, those bases. This is going to be something remarkably different. Having said that, there's there's no alternative here. We we have it's math. <laughs> like like at a certain point, you just you can't argue with math, or you can, but politically, you know, if it's politics or math, math is going to win out ultimately in the long run. And that's what we think. I I think we need to start preparing for because the sooner we make these decisions, 
as painful as it's going to be, the, 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 the less pain it will be in the long run. Now, as to the McCarthy question, look, I think that this is not terribly dissimilar from shutting down the government, right? There's this game of chicken that goes on. And I remember in the mid-1990s with the first government shutdown, I was like, this is not going to happen. This will never happen. You know, uh, Gingrich had just been elected. The Republicans had just taken over Congress for the first time in 40 years. He and Clinton played this game of chicken, and the government shuts down, and the Republicans ultimately get blamed. I think that this will be the same type of scenario. Okay, I do. Now, be, be, because what they're the, the solution for for the solution is to just extend the the debt limit, right? To keep punting the problem down the road. That's the easy political solution. That's essentially where the Democrats are at. And I'm not making a judgment call on it. Just politically, that's where it's at. That's the easiest way for the politicians to get out. The Republicans are saying, no, we want to cut, we want to cut, we want to cut. We want more pain on top of the pain that's already going to come to the economy. So this sounds like a good idea until it happens. It's like shutting down the government. But once it happens, every day becomes a steady day, uh, uh, drumbeat, uh, uh, you know, this dripping faucet of pain that comes out. And when you start to say the solution is even more pain, you're going to start having significant, significant pushback. So my real fear is the damage will be done to our credibility, to the full faith and credit of the United States, and we will end up not making any of these changes uh, in the final analysis because public sentiment will move so decisively against the Republicans. And my, my strong suspicion is that's the likeliest scenario. So I think if they could, if McCarthy could uh, reconcile this with, with, with the solution that Romina uh, you know, suggested and that the, uh, the Congress is considering with having this quote-unquote independent or neutral or, or outside body uh, make these decisions – that I don't know. I don't know if that's enough of a win for him to take home to the Republican conference. That's probably not the case. But I, I you know, if, if he's not able to do that and survive it, it's highly unlikely. I think that he survives um, defaulting and then caving two weeks later, which is probably the likeliest scenario. I think that becomes a test of his leadership. I think it severely tarnishes the Republican brand, and I think it, it obviously damages. Uh, indelibly, the 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 brand of the United States as a as a as a as the the, the backbone of our of our um, world's economics. Yeah. So on that point, I want to take a few minutes now to talk about the, shall we say, eight hundred pound zombie in the room, which is modern monetary theory (MMT). As a lot of listeners, uh, at least a handful of listeners, have written in and said, "Yeah, but what about MMT?" I'm thinking of one in particular who likes to write about this frequently every time we talk about economics, but the the MMT is a truly preposterous theory that is now defunct and has been resoundingly um, rebuked by all serious financial people. It's this theory that we don't need to worry about debt, that we can borrow as much as we want and spend as much as we want because we can always repay that debt by printing an infinite amount of money because we print the money at the United States. So let me just give you a few examples of just how dead this is. In 2019, the University of Chicago surveyed leading economists about MMT, and zero of them were in agreement with the theory's basic assertion. Three quarters of them uh, strongly disagreed. Um, even big government economists like Larry Summers and Paul Krugman uh, know it's bullshit. Larry Summers has called it fallacious. Paul Krugman has called it indefensible. Even the Progressive Policy Institute has said, quote, 
Full embrace of MMT's policy proposals and new norms, whatever they may be, carries significant risks. Those risks can include higher and more volatile inflation and interest rates and financial market instability, which would disrupt and depress real economic activity and harm the most people MMT aims to benefit, end quote. And just to put the cherry on top, Mitch Daniels, writing in an op-ed in the Washington Post, says... Quote, these days, transparent nonsense can be shielded by tribalism or the groupthink of elite opinion. If a notion is convenient enough in justifying a preferred outcome, it can survive despite mountains of evidentiary or just common sense refutation. Think of imaginary stolen elections or defunding police in an era in an era of exploding crime. End quote. This is sort of I call it a zombie because it's the it's the background uh assumption that it seems a lot of lawmakers are still working with, which is that pass whatever spending bills you want, we will always be able to print more money to pay back whatever it costs us to borrow this money. Ramina, can you speak to this a little bit? Yeah, I loved all the quotes, by the way. I actually think that uh, we've been living in this era of, uh, of a post-Keynesian um, economic thinking uh, for quite some time. And, you know, politicians um, after World War II, when they heard from from Keynes that there was a way to spend money and actually grow the economy, they they heard that first part and they were like, that's great. Let's spend money, grow the economy. We like that. And then they didn't listen to the second part. But during economically good times, you actually want to tighten um, the fiscal purse strings to allow the economy to flourish. You don't want to crowd out investment in uh, in the productive areas of our economy because that's really what the question is about. And I think MMTers, just to give them some credit, they will acknowledge that we do have real resource constraints. What they may not agree with is to the d- d- degree to which that, um, that money is relevant in terms of how we allocate our real resources. Um, but I think that's really the question at the core, like how, how many of our real resources, whether you're talking talking about workers or uh, materials, should the government control and how much of that should be controlled by the private sector? And what are the outcomes that we get? And I think that there is a, a, some level of government spending that you need in order to allow the economy to flourish, in order to secure property rights, in order to establish rule of law, prosecute crimes, etc. Um, so the right level of government spending is not zero, but it also maybe isn't 40% of GDP. It's maybe at those levels, if you look at uh, state, local, and federal combined, we're already spending too much and that reduces growth and that means it reduces opportunities, reduces jobs, um, means that people will have lower wages than they otherwise would. Um, there's other, you know, more concrete factors that maybe can people can appreciate over wages and income. And that is the degree to which a growing economy tends to mean that we have longer life expectancies and a healthier population that is better able to realize its full potential. And those are all things that matter. And um, and that's, I think, where MMTers lose sight. They want all the good stuff, but they don't uh, they don't recognize that there's costs and trade-offs. And politicians don't like costs and trade-offs either. So as long as we let them get away with just spending money and borrowing it, um, without restraint, they're going to they're going to keep doing that, and that's why I think that that limit is important because it is that action forcing mechanism. It uh, it makes Congress grapple with the debt, and you know I hear the discussions on the on on the left in particular. Well, those should be discussions we're having over the budget. But have you looked at budget debates in recent years? It's always about how much more to spend and what to spend the money on, and that if you cut spending, you know, here are all the people you're going to hurt. There's very little discussion over 
the broader issues, uh, our national debt and the burden that will pose for not just future generations, but this generation and is posing right now. This is not a future crisis. When you have debt as big as your economy, this is a crisis that we're facing right now. And lower growth, we know what that means. Fewer jobs, um, people not uh, being able to be as well off as they otherwise would be. Yeah. Go ahead, Lucy. An aspect of this conversation, I mean, Romina mentioned the idea of like how what is the appropriate cap on spending as a percentage of GDP? That is a conversation that we have just stopped having nationally. I, I mean, it, this was a crisis 15 years ago, but we were at least having the conversation. Simpson Bowles or Bowles Simpson, depending on who you like, <laughs> your particular <laughs> political affiliation. That was an Obama era commission. Yeah. That was a bipartisan commission. That was something that everyone agreed we needed, I mean, not everyone, many people on both sides of the aisle agreed we needed to undertake to tackle figuring out how to reduce the deficit. And and now that conversation simply is not happening. And I, I think that from a from a political perspective, in a way, because just Republicans have taken such a hard line of of being willing to play roulette around the debt ceiling and talk that way. I think that Democrats, even though, you know, actually we have done, made some progress in reducing the deficit since, say, last year, Democrats can, for some reason, have distanced themselves from being the party of of discussing, at least, that there should be, <laughs> perhaps, maybe not, it's not austerity measures, but maybe we should take a look at some of this. And you are right to say, Ron, for example, that Biden deftly did get Republicans to make those commitments around entitlements. But yeah. why? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like those are things that we need to take a look at. And that is not, you know, we we often act like the U.S. as a, as a country that doesn't have a safety net in the way that other countries do. Other countries are having this conversation, right? Like they they are countries that we think of as countries with big safety nets. I don't know if I'd call what's so, going on in France a conversation, but but but, but yeah, they are. Um, yeah, uh, I you know at first when you know when I started thinking about this, I thought maybe the best possible outcome here in the in the immediate term is for all parties to. Negotiate now on a number, agree on a number, a top line percentage spending cut, tie that to a short term suspension of the debt limit, and then take up several months in that stopgap to figure out how you get there. Um, uh, or maybe take that several months to figure out how you set up the commission, right? That's going to make those actual cuts. Um, do you see any politically feasible path forward, Lucy? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I I think that the constituencies of people and of voters who are impacted by this, we tend to anchor to, um, I think that people tend to anchor to the a conversation around boomers and like, will, will my social security be here uh, next year, in 10 years, whatever. But the people who need to realize that they're really the ones who are paying the price and are going to be completely screwed over and already have been, are the younger generations like millennials. I mean, when you know, I'm 35, I came of age when the economy was in the worst downturn, you know, in 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 anyone's memory since the Great Depression. It was a horrible time to come of age. People in in who are millennials around that age have had permanent permanent 
economic challenges because of that, right? There's stuff coming out this week about this idea of uh, uh, that we also now can't shift assets from boomers to that generation fast enough. And there are all these millennials who are never going to have the kinds of access to economic um, flexibility that previous generations have, and it will only get worse. So I think that efforts by people to actually begin to uh, remind younger voters that this actually should be an issue that that rises to their attention in the way that mm. social issues do. It's very hard to get people, the current versions of people's selves, to um, act in the interest of their totally. future self, right? It's like when you're eating the cheeseburger, you're not thinking about how kind of how your gut is going to feel in a few hours, right? When you stay up all night, you're not thinking about how two nights from now um, you're going to feel like you wish you'd gotten a better sleep. And I know that sounds sort of like, like a. No, it's real. (laughs) But that's part of what's, that is part of what's happening in, in this. Yeah. Mike, any closing thoughts on this topic? No, just uh, the the arc. The, it's so remarkable, and of course, it's it's great to hear Lucy because she's she is from a younger generation and came of age during the you know Tea Party movement. I, I you know I became a Republican you know at the end of the Reagan era, when when this was a central part of conservatism of Republicanism. Now we weren't we weren't doing that in practice, right? We, we were we yeah. were spending money as as quick as anybody else, but it was one of the stronger, more compelling messages that we used to engage folks um it's not even a part of the the it's not even an arrow in the quiver of messages that republicans use that are having any resonance anymore and so there's no party that's really focused on this and that's horrifying because it's like it's at the moment right now when all the red lights are going off and it's like okay who's gonna do who's gonna (laughs) stand up and take the you know the political hit for this and everyone's like hey i ain't gonna do it right which is why i think i think this whole brac concept is the only way out we're gonna have to find 64 people who will make the tough decisions the the politicians need somebody to blame okay virtue was back in the day where we would compromise and they would fight and they would posture and they'd do the kabuki dance of negotiations. They'd go into the room and they'd come out and they'd pat each other on the back and say, they came a long way, they came a long way, and their everybody's constituents would be like, okay, well, you know, I don't like what happened, but everybody, nobody likes what happened, so that's the way this whole thing works. Today, that's not that's a vice. That is not virtue. Now, it's if you even go into that room with somebody, you're suspect, and unless we have somebody to blame you know, and, and we win everything, 100% of what we want, we don't even know what that is, then, you know, there's going to be hell to pay. So we're literally going to have to find these people on this commission that will make these decisions and then be, you know, willing to to, to lose their citizenship and move abroad for the rest of their oh, life. Oh, oh, because oh, oh, oh. <laughs> they'll never be welcome back. So, yeah, Romina, it's been great having you. <laughs> All right, gang. Uh, let's leave it there for today. I'm sure we'll be talking about this more in the future. Ramina, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, let's talk about Title 42, which expired last night at midnight. Uh, That is the COVID public health emergency uh, that ended, um, which means that Title 42 immigration policy has ended. This policy 
which was invoked during the COVID-19 pandemic, has allowed for rapid expulsion of migrants without standard immigration processing. Experts are predicting a significant surge in migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border as this policy ends. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Troy Miller told Congress last month that they're expecting roughly 10,000 migrants to cross the border daily after Title 42 ends. Daily. An influx that could prove challenging to manage, to say the least. But even before the expected surge, there were more than 11,000 border apprehensions on Tuesday. NBC News is reporting that the Biden administration is preparing a memo ordering CBP to begin releasing migrants into the U.S. without court dates and without tracking them. Without court dates and without tracking them. I had to read that twice because I almost couldn't believe it. Um, so in March of 2021, the Biden administration started a program called Alternatives to Detention, which released migrants into the U.S. but required them to check in via a mobile app until they were given a court date. And this new policy would release them on parole with a notice to report to an Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office, but would not require the use of the mobile app. Uh, a DHS spokesperson said that this new policy would only apply to migrants who have been carefully vetted, but don't really know what that means. Currently, Customs and Border Protection Processing Centers are holding more than 27,000 migrants when they're equipped to hold roughly 18,500. Even before Title 42 ended, we had near record level migration. We didn't have enough capacity to hold and process this many people. Uh, previous IG reports have noted that overcrowding at these facilities can lead to migrants not having proper food, hygiene, laundry facilities. It prevents that it presents health and safety risks for the migrants and DHS agents. So a huge influx of migrants could create a real humanitarian crisis at the border. Mike, what's it going to take for there to be a real conversation about fixing our broken immigration system? It's going to take a very significant humanitarian crisis, which is very likely to happen. And, and that the sad part about this was this was all avoidable, and it has been for 30 years. The politics of immigration reform are not complicated. It's very simple. And I can tell you exactly what the elements are going to be when they do get to a solution. And I can tell you what they should have been 10 years ago. And I can tell you what they should have been 20 years ago because they're the same. It's not hard to do this. The problem is both parties, I know this is going to anger a lot of people, but good, you need to hear this. Both parties have benefited from a broken immigration system. And the game of chicken that we have been playing for 30 years was who's going to blink first? When, who is going to be playing the game of musical chairs when the music stops and who's going to be left without a chair? And right now, where we're at is President Biden is going to be holding that chair. This is a sign, and this is Title 42, it's not the entire immigration system, but it's a sign of the collapse that is beginning. The fact that we do not have anywhere near the capacity to manage what is going on is because of three or four decades of neglect now. Now, both parties, both parties have been in control of Congress in the White House, both parties have been in control of, of the presidency. There, there's plenty of blame to go around. The question was going to be who's going to be in charge when this actually has to be dealt with. I don't think anybody predicted, I certainly did not, that it would be Title 42 that would be the catalyst for this. This is a major development, and this is foundationally different than what has been happening for 30, 40 years of ignoring this problem. We are going to see massive amounts of people surging towards the border, and we don't have the capacity to, to, to stop it or to limit it or to manage it. And so what's going to happen is exactly what's happening. We're going to start releasing people into the country because there is no process that has allowed for this to, 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 to be managed. 
And so, yeah, you're going to see people dying. You're going to see um, people starving. You're going to see probably disease breakout. Like, it's going to be calamitous. I really believe that. I've never said that before with the situation because all of them have been manageable to this point. We are no longer at a point where it is manageable. And look, the way politically this is going to be resolved is Joe Biden is going to have to tell his base, I'm sorry, you're not getting what you want, which incidentally is the way most good public policy is made. When a, when a politician can stand up and tell his base, you're not going to get everything that you need. He's going to have to start taking definitive measures to secure the border. He's already said, I'm going to send 1,500 troops to begin militarizing the border because he has to, and he should, frankly. And he's going to have to finally have Democrats put a solution on the table to start saying what does the entire system look like to reform because this can no longer be piecemealed. It's a very, very significant development. And like I said, if you want to blame the Republicans for immigration, go ahead. If you want to blame the Democrats for immigration, go ahead. But immediately leave the room because you're not a constructive part of this discussion. Both parties have an equal amount of blame in this. And if you don't want to believe me, let's keep going down the road on what Obama's deportation policies were like because he deported more people than every other president in the history of the country combined. Okay, And Joe Biden's policies right now are to the right of Donald Trump's. And both sent an immense amount of people and military to the border. So I'm sorry I get a little bit passionate about this because the hypocrisy on this issue is hurting people and hurting their lives. And the more we sit in our own partisan foxholes to start fighting about this and, and blaming the other party, the more people are dying by trying to cross this, this very dangerous border, the more women and children are being exploited and trafficked, the more drugs are pouring across our border the, the greater the likelihood for a true humanitarian crisis to begin spilling over, all because people want to sit in their coffee shop or their office and blame the other side rather than actually force the parties to come together and do what we know needs to get done. And the irony is, economically, to the previous question, the previous segment, we need a lot of more immigrants. We mm -hmm. need these people in here doing the jobs that we need done to stabilize the underpinnings of our economy. <laughs> Look at the essential workforce problems. Look at the workforce problems we had after COVID. All of these places couldn't find workers. It wasn't a, 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 a dollar problem. It was a workforce problem. We figured that out. We realized that. That's what's keeping the economy going is this labor source. And we need not just a little bit of it. We need a lot more of it. So I'm sorry I could go on and on about this segment, but this is something that I think we've finally reached the end of the road. And, and again, I don't, I don't blame the Democrats any more than the Republicans, but I blame them equally. And Biden's going to have to – he's the one who drew the short straw. He's the president who finally is like, it's collapsing now. You're going to have to solve the damn problem. You have to solve it now, and you can't listen to your, your, your partisan constituencies. You can't listen to the Latino advocacy groups. You can't listen to anybody. You have to get in there and lead. You have to be an executive and fix the damn problem because the problem is now uh, boiling over and it's going to affect uh, human beings in a very, very real, very serious way. So, Lucy, in March, the New York Times reported that the Biden administration was considering a return to the practice of detaining families who cross the border illegally. And that is the same policy the Biden administration has been shutting down over the last two years in an attempt to build a more humane immigration system. They've said uh, they've largely ended the practice of detaining families and instead have released them into the United States temporarily. 
um, used ankle bra bracelets or tra traceable cell phones and other methods to track them. But the White House didn't deny the report at the time, and it drew a lot of criticism from Democrats. Um, and you know, in April, Ty Johnson, which is the acting director of the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, told Congress that they were not currently planning to restart family detention, quote, in any way, shape, or form. But he did qualify it by saying that they weren't considering it at the time. The White House has put out a stronger statement denying they're considering reinstating the policy. And I'm now thinking about the town hall I just watched last night with Donald Trump, where he was asked, would you would would you commit to, you know, not doing this again, family separation at the border? And he said, well, you know, if they know they're going to be separated, then they won't come. And he talked about it as a deterrent. What do you expect the blowback to be if the Biden administration reinstates the exact policy that they attacked the Trump administration for using? Well, I think that the devil is in the details a little bit. I think family separation is quite distinct from a from a deten from detention centers that that those are very those are distinct <laughs> distinct uh, scenarios. I think that very unclear what they intend to do. I, I tried to parse it in all the reporting, and it's it's very unclear. There, yeah. you know, and and also there's been there's been reporting on the idea that yes, these people are being released, but they're being released in a program where they'll be put under house arrest. I mean, they're, they're, it is, we, we don't have, we don't have very much information and we need more information. And that's certainly a problem. And we deserve to have more information about what the policy will and won't be. There's something really remarkable about the fact that you have Republican presidential candidates like Nikki Haley to pick up on your the, tying this back yeah. to the, the coming presidential cycle. Um, saying that Title 42, which is a pandemic era emergency measure, should be made permanent, right? So the, the basically we should extend Title 42. So the same people who uh, would like to say that the pandemic is completely over, nothing to see here. And, and also, in some cases, rightly take aim at um, Biden policies like using uh, the the COVID emergency to uh, make changes to student loan debt, right, that they now also want to see things that were um, done because of COVID extended. One of the things that I think is really important about what Mike is saying is that Mike is emphasizing the human aspect of this and the fact that the the concern is around uh, our ability to deal with a looming humanitarian crisis of people who are desperate who have made a long journey, who are in terrible situations, coming to this country and finding themselves in a situation where they may not be able to get the help they need. They may be uh, find themselves ill, you know, unable to find food to eat, just very basic core human condition issues. And I stress that because I really want to get something across that I think is a really important piece of information for people to be armed with, or at least understand, as this national conversation becomes bigger, which is that right now, the, the human piece, so important. A lot of the, the, the talking points that you will see on the right tend to try to make the case that people coming over the border, so-called illegal immigrants, are, the, the threat is that we are having criminals streaming in and that they are going to go do bad acts, like, you know, down your street. And that is just from a data perspective, not true. That is 
incorrect. And there's not a huge amount of data on this because many, many law enforcement agencies do not track the immigration status of people. But Texas does. Texas is not a state that is trying to, you know, like make life easier for people coming over the border illegally. And consistently, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you some stats. Uh, U.S. born citizens are twice as likely to be arrested for violent crimes than undocumented immigrants, two and a half times more likely to be arrested for drug crimes, four times more likely to be arrested for property crimes. Right. This is consistent across the board. And the narrative to the contrary, the narrative that th- that what is happening when we talk about lack of lack of control or fortification of our southern border is that a whole bunch of criminals who have come here to do bad acts are doing that. That is just complete bullshit. And people who listen to politicology know I don't swear often, but that is <laughs> bullshit. People who are yeah. criminals are not coming over the border to do crime. They can do crime in in their home countries. Many of them are actually trying to get away from being victims of normalized crime in places that have big problems. So I don't mean to get on a rant yeah. about this, but I think that those pieces are really important because that awareness of that fact completely, in from my perspective, of course, changes the conversation about detention, right? It totally changes the conversation about, you know, what our degree of tracking should be of these people, house arrest, detention centers, court dates. I'm not saying that we open the border and just let everyone in and have no policy around the border. That's clearly not sustainable. But it is really important to not only lead with compassion toward mm-hmm. the people who are at our southern border, but also to be aware of the fact that the narrative that this is a, a, a like crime is going to be coming to your next door neighbor is not true. So I just I add that context because I think yeah. it's really important to this it conversation. Is. Yeah, no, it is, uh, especially with Trump now on the campaign trail again. Um, Mike, one of the big myths that uh, campaigns on the left fall victim to is the the idea that immigration must be a major issue for Latino voters. And, you know, we've talked about this before. Pew did some polling last fall um, that we actually saw on your Twitter feed, by the way. Um, one of the key aspects of the poll was the differences between Latino Democrats and Latino Republicans. 62% of Latino Democrats said allowing dreamers who are, again, children who came to the country illegally to remain in the U.S. and apply for legal status was very important versus 33% of Latino Republicans. There was a 30-point gap in who said establishing a way for most immigrants who came to the country illegally to stay here legally, favored by Latino Democrats. 30 points in the importance of increasing border security, favored by Latino Republicans. A 20-point gap in whether taking civilian refugees, uh, escaping violence, and war is a top priority, again, favored by Latino Democrats. So We've spoken a lot about how the realignment of Latinos is shaping elections. What could a major immigration crisis mean for that realignment? It would be very damaging for the Democrats, and let me explain why. The first is um, you have to understand the nature of the Latino electorate has changed considerably over the past few decades, okay, since the last major immigration overhaul. Uh, immigration, legal immigration, and, and illegal immigration has actually been on the decline for the past 10, 15 years. It's been slowed and slowed dramatically. Okay. That has changed 
the nature of those who are naturalizing and voting, and the fastest growing segment of the Latino electorate by a very wide measure are U.S.-born Latinos who are English-dominant, who have very little um, direct personal impact with the immigration experience. It's part of their family history, but they're not, they're American citizens. They've only known American citizens. These are English speakers. They are playing with your kids. These are people who do not have any sort of affinity with the immigration issue. They're much more worried about climate change and, and you know, Ukraine and all these other issues like everybody else is. But there is a media stereotype. And frankly, it's perpetuated by Latino politicians of both stripes. There just happen to be a lot more Democrats who lean into this narrative that this is a defining issue. And so if you were an alien and came to the United States and were observing and saying, well, what are the two issues that, you know, affect Latinos the most, you would say, oh, they're farm workers and border issues, because that is 90% of what is promulgated by politicians, Latino politicians, and the media. And that there is no data, there is no evidence suggesting that that is the case. Okay. Now, the reason why this becomes particularly problematic is in every one of those data points that you mentioned, there's about a mid-30s range of support for Republican politicians' point of view on this. Notice that is where almost precisely where this rightward shift number is, is, is landing. Latinos are moving to the right on immigration issues, especially those that live in border communities. The Mexican-American vote, which is a subset of the Latino vote, but the, by far the largest, it's 60% of the Latino vote, is where you are seeing this rightward shift happen in a, in a pretty pronounced fashion. So the Rio Grande Valley up to the New Mexico 2 border district, right? Everything along the border, California itself, all of these districts are seeing a pronounced rightward measurable shift. Why? It's because these are the people who are directly affected by the immigration crisis at the border, right? It's like, it's not hard to, to understand what this problem is. And the fact that Democrats are relying on the same strategy of simply vilifying Republicans and saying Republicans are these horrible human beings, and I'm not going to make a judgment call on whether they are, whether or not, because my opinion no on defense. that has changed considerably. <laughs> but yeah. the point is, that's not a, a tool anymore to turn out Latino voters the way that it was in the 1990s in the first, century, first decade of this century. It does not work anymore. The Democrats still can't figure that out. They're running the same playbook. They did it in 2016 and lost 8% of the vote. They ran it again in 2020. They lost another 11% of the vote. They're going to try to run it again in 2024 in the midst of this crisis when Latinos are increasingly saying, do something about this problem. They're listening to their activists. They're listening to the people in their, in their party, their hierarchy. They're listening to their appointees saying, don't do anything, don't do anything. And they're going to pay for it at the at the polling place. That's why Biden has to immediately defy his base. Julian Castro, I mean, to, to his, and I don't agree with much that the Castro brothers say. I think their politics are far, far to the left of where, certainly where the Latino community is, undeniably, but also where I think you know most Americans are at. But he did have the courage to stand up and call Biden out in saying that the policies that you're pursuing are to the right of Donald Trump. It's not just a family separation policy, which the fact that they're floating that, right? They're, they're prepping a, a policy for that. That's what's going on is the White House is saying, we may reinstitute this policy. They'll deal with the blowback and then they'll negotiate a position because they're going to do it. They will do it. I guarantee you. Why? Precisely for the reasons Donald Trump said is when the American president speaks, the entire continent of, of Latin, the entire Latin American community is listening and people will literally, on the words of a president, begin walking 
thousands of miles to get to the southern border. And Democrats have not had the same um, strong language. I'm not, definitely not defending Donald Trump's language on this, but if you have an open language or, or, or show that there might be some sort of opening, that's enough to compel people in desperate situations to walk thousands of miles to possibly perhaps get into this country. The, uh, the the militarization of the border I already talked about the fact that we are now we are now President Biden has instituted a policy of handling asylum in Mexico as opposed to here in the United States it was an issue that he he just crucified Trump on rightfully so by the way in the last presidential election for for even for for offering that saying this is the first time a president of the United States has ever done that in our history they are now doing that the Biden administration has now adopted that as a formal policy. So the Democrats are going to have to come to this realization that all of their rhetoric is, is not working anymore, not from a policy perspective and increasingly less from a political perspective. And that's making them make these quiet decisions in the dark of night to move to the right of Donald Trump. Yes, I said that. Yes, it's true. And yes, Obama did a lot of these same things. Okay, this is not new. So they need to realize they're not going to get whatever they want. Uh, 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 in terms of an immigration uh, uh, solution, because it's a crisis now. And, and here's the great irony. I was just reading Ruben Grijalva, congressman, very, rec- very well respected and recognized on these issues, put out this kind of statement saying, look, we, we've got we've to solve the problem. Like it's becoming a big issue. The, the, there's going to be a growing realization that the Democrats have never put specifics on the table it's why they have always been open to the political charge of open borders. Okay, if you the, the the Republicans, as bad as the policy is, it could be built, put up a moat and alligators and build a wall and stop all immigration. It's obviously a horrible, indefensible position, but it's a position, and Democrats have attacked them on it. Democrats have been trying to not be attacked by not saying anything and offering no specifics. You can't show me a single Democrat that have specific solutions put into bill form to move this policy forward. It doesn't exist. And that has left them open to the open borders charge. And they can't refute it because what are they going to say? And so that has to change. The politics are moving away from the Democrats on this issue from both a voter turnout perspective and a public opinion perspective. And ironically, it's happening at the same time that they're going to have to develop a policy framework that is going to put them at least where the Republicans are at, if not in many cases to the right of Donald Trump. And again, I'm not saying this is any you know fault of anybody. I, everybody is at fault here. They are all at fault. It's just that the music stopped with one chair and Biden was left standing and he's going to have to go in there and fix this because this will have tremendous impacts on the presidential campaign. I've been saying, and I'll end with this, I've been saying for many months, the fundamentals of this race are very, very strong for the re-election of an incumbent Democratic president right now, as strong as I have seen them since 1996. Joe Biden is in a very strong position, but things change in the campaign. This has the potential to shift the two most significant voter groups that are are the only really uh, moving groups in American uh, uh, politics today. College-educated white suburban women, okay? Are, are they going to react to this? You're damn right they are, yeah. right? They, this, is, this is how you scare the hell out of them. This is how Republicans are going to scare them because suddenly you start saying, oh, people come across from the border and they're, they're druggists, rapists, whatever. These are brown people. Is that going to work? Absolutely that's going to work. 
And the second are Latino voters, which have been shifting to the right, which are going to respond to this as well. Those are the only two voter segments that matter in American politics right now. They will determine the control of Congress, and they will control who goes to the White House. And Biden's got to get on this. He's got to fix it. He's got to fix it now. He's going to have to tell his own caucus, uh, sit down, because we're going to fix this. And whether you like it or not, you're going to have to deal with this, and you're going to have to put up the votes to get this damn thing done. I love when Mike brings the medicine. This is yeah. This one gets me hopped up. Thirty years, you know. This is this yeah. is the the, the the frustration. I'm sorry. The frustration here is from recognizing everybody knows what the solution is. We have always known what it is, and it's it tells you how broken we are as a as a government and as a society when we will watch kids being trafficked, we will watch drugs coming through our border, we will watch violence break out on both sides because we're worried about the turnout of our respective bases in a midterm or a presidential election. Look, uh, the New York Times has been writing a, a great series of stories about child labor laws, right? All these kids that are showing up working and all these corporations, what do they all have in common? They're all immigrant kids. These aren't second, third generation kids that grew up in the suburbs. These are kids that were trafficked here from other countries that are now you know, 10-year-olds working at McDonald's. Right? There's 14-year-olds working at manufacturing plants in the Midwest. There's people, you know, 16-year-olds working on heavy equipment in, in, in agricultural communities in the Midwest. Like it's the, 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 the labor need is so bad that they're, they're hiring illegal kids to come and work. And, and it's just it's a, it's a shame of our nation that, we're, that, that we would rather do that than just simply solve the damn problem and have the politicians come together and, and do what we all know needs to be done because – both sides essentially and quiet will agree on what the solution is. It's not complicated. All right. Now that we're up to speed on a couple of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we're watching. Lucy, what do you have for us? Well, I'm, interested i don't think that there's a there's a tldr kind of conclusion of this but i'm interested in the news that we're entering an el nino year um which has a lot of impact on our weather Ooh. globally um it in some parts of the u.s can make it a really rainy year it can inhibit hurricanes and tropical storms or it can do the opposite um it tends to raise global temperatures um but Needless to say, we haven't had an El Nino year in a few years. And I think that given the uh, waxing and waning conversation around climate, we probably will see a renewed interest in that conversation now that we're entering an El Nino. So I don't mm -hmm. have any prognostication to do on that, but I think it's something to be aware of. It, it It's one of those things where it could, it, it could be um, create a misleading perception of what's happening, or it could mm. create a reality check about what's happening. But it's um, it's a it's a a force that we should all get up to speed on yeah. as we follow that ongoing conversation around our climate and water shortage and forest fires and all of those things that really <sighs> impact us. Yeah, that's a look, good look down the road. Uh, I brought a little piece of candy today which is uh, that George Santos has pled uh, not guilty to fraud charges, 13 counts, including wire fraud, money laundering, stealing public funds, and lying on federal disclosure forms. Here's what he had to say at a press conference. 
They've been gracious in there. Now I'm going to have to go and fight to defend myself. The reality is, is it's a witch hunt because it, it, it makes no sense that in four months, four months, five months, I'm indicted. You have Joe Biden's entire family receiving deposits from nine, nine family members receiving money from foreign from foreign destinations into their bank accounts. It's been years of exposing. A lot of you here have reported on them, and yet no investigation is launched into them. I'm gonna fight. I well, and I'm just going I'm getting back to that. I'm gonna fight my battle. I'm gonna deliver. I'm gonna fight the witch hunt. I'm gonna take care of clearing my name, and I look forward to doing that. And for the chaser, here's what Mitt Romney had to say. Uh, he should have resigned a long time ago. Uh, he's an embarrassment to our party. He's an embarrassment to the United States Congress. Okay. Yeah, take off the glove. My, 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 <laughs> you know the 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 kind of the the phrase mistakes were made, but not by me, right? Like to, to <laughs> yeah. describe how perpetrators of crimes and bad acts basically create a cognitive dissonance. My favorite part of the George Santos press conference is that he he basically starts to acknowledge that there are all these things on his campaign finance disclosures that are completely wrong. And he he starts talking about how they are need to be corrected. He just, I mean, keep talking, George, right? Yeah. But then he then is like, it's because I had these consultants who were highly respected and hired and worked on all these campaigns. And I, I trusted them. But it's like by saying that, it's like, uh, okay, yet somehow all of those same consultants and like finance people on your campaign, you're saying they've been in many campaigns. And this has never happened on any of those other campaigns. What's the difference there? Which of these things? What what made this campaign different? Could it be you? <laughs> it's so good. Mike, what'd you bring? Well, there's an aspect I want to talk about uh, the Trump town hall. And I don't want to yeah. step on any other stories. Um, no, that's good. Because I was going to ask you guys about it if it didn't come up. So yeah. yeah um, did you watch it? Uh, yeah, I did watch it, and I mean, there was nothing new here. But uh, but what what was, um, and I'm trying to just dis- dissect what what it was. But this social media pushback of like, how dare CNN yeah. <laughs> air this? And this is an attack on journalism and democracy, and they're complicit in it. And I'm just like, We're blaming what the CNN. hell are you talking about? <laughs> this is going to be the the nominee of a major party. Is it a is it a shit show? Yeah. Is it a circus? Yeah. Show that to the American public. Mm-hmm. He's not convincing anybody. This was the worst advertisement for his reelection that you could ever imagine. But this this weird like emerging like if 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 you you're somehow normalizing it right that word that we've been you know overusing for eight ten years it's like mm-hmm. he was the president of the united states it's it's normalized yeah. it's normal yeah. folks it's who we are and if we don't look <laughs> yep. at it you know woe on us because it, it's coming this fight is here right i'm sorry and i think that's really what it was was it was triggering people to like coming back and it's like as long as we could stick our head in the hole in the ground like an ostrich then it wouldn't be here it's here it's going to be a fight it's going to be nastier than it's been and, and that's just what we're going to have to deal with but this and it's not and it's a lot of it's a lot of people that i respect just going this is yeah. you know, cnn is like this is undermining journalism and democracy and this is how fascism starts it's like what the hell what are, are you, you talking, talking about, about? Yeah, right this is exactly why journalism exists and i think i thought caitlin collins did a great job that the dude's a madman 
Okay. Yeah. It, 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 she's trying to be a professional journalist. Did a great job of it. He's trying to slink into the gutter. Anyway. There's no other way this is going to play out. And we all knew that. And and acting like not talking about it is somehow going to make it okay. That's the danger is if you think that, you know, or, or people were clapping in the audience. Yeah, it's a, it's a Republican primary audience in New Hampshire. What the hell do you think is going to happen? Clap. And it's yeah. good for people to see that, that don't go walk in that media bubble, that there are a lot of Americans that, that, that are, that are of that you know, persuasion that are going to cheer that on that like him, not despite his failings, but because of those failings, like that is, that is who we are. And that's the fight before us. So stop with the, with the, 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 the nonsense, the, this is a bad for democracy is bad for journalism. It's like, what, get that weak shit out of here. It, it reminds me of something kind of related that I've grappled with recently myself, which is that I've made a couple of appearances on Fox News. And when I've gone on Fox News because they've asked me to come on and I'm saying the same things I say here and everywhere else, saying the same things I say on MSNBC, when I've gone on, I've had people say, do you really think that you should go on Fox News because it's Fox, right? And the reality is it's like, Yeah. And it's consistently the network that is getting the most eyeballs. Like you can put your head in the sand and be like, we should just pretend that's all not happening. It's not here, but it's here. It's been here. It will be there. And so this siloing, what you're talking about, Mike, is this siloing of, of how people communicate with each other. And, and it is really dangerous because you can't just, it is not realistic to be like, don't speak to the the largest audience of 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 television viewers, right? Like, don't don't mention Judge. the Republican the, front runner. It's crazy. It's yeah. really troubling. Yeah, yeah it's as scary yeah. as as scary as what's happening on the right. It's like there's this social pressure to shut them down. Don't talk to them. Boycott CNN. They're giving voice to. To, to the Republican primary winner and former president of the United States? Yeah, that's like literally their job. And front runner. And front runner. He's going to win. Like, stop, 100%. stop. You know, the, yeah. if, you're, if your anger is focused at CNN, you're part of the problem here because you are completely, you completely misunderstand what's going on here. It, it's like if, yeah. you, if you just, if we all just ignore him and pretend like it's not there, then it's not happening. It's this ostrich strategy. It's like, it's like trying just to because change you reality can't see it or can't hear it doesn't mean it's not happening. Yeah. That's not the way you should be consuming news. And it is news. This is not some fringe guy. He got 70 million votes and he's probably yeah. going to get about the same this next election cycle. Um, yeah, I just it's it just baffles me. The thing that stood out to me about the whole thing, I mean, obviously there were there were moments which you know we don't have to get into, but as a as a whole, as a piece of theater. This to me was not the same Donald Trump that was showing up to the rallies and constant grievance and I'm the victim and all of that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't dark like all of those ones that I've watched and that we've talked about. This was 2015 Trump. This was funny Trump. This was like, oh, he, he, the audience was laughing. He, they were eating out of the palm of his hand. He was making faces. Uh, and I forgot how entertaining he can be when he wants to be. And that was the Trump who showed up. That was a, it was a different version than we've seen. Well, so they packed the room with Trumpy people, yeah, and that was another yeah. kind of kind of weird thing. Like maybe diversify the audience. The but when out of their way to say it was, it was this New Hampshire Republican audience, right? New Hampshire Republicans. Yeah, I mean that's the, yeah, that's most of Republicans. True. Yeah. Uh, 
Anyway, plenty more on Trump to come, but I didn't think it was worth the whole uh, yeah. segment today. So, <laughs> okay, uh, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to discuss the rise of white nationalist Hispanics. Yes, you heard that correctly. Uh, where can everybody find you on the internet these days, Mike? Uh, find me on Twitter, at Madrid underscore Mike. Give up on Mastodon? Huh? No, I'm on Mastodon too. Oh, okay. You can find me at Mike Madrid at ci.com on Mastodon. Okay. Lucy? I'm on Twitter at Lucy M. Caldwell, and I couldn't even tell you my Mastodon username. So. <laughs> I'm still on Twitter at Ron Steslo, but I don't really tweet much. I do check my DMs occasionally, but okay. See you next week. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>